2: to value listeners this week we have a special episode about authentic truth love and compassion we're exploring a family's journey in gender affirming care i've asked a co-worker of mine at the levitt school of health at wgu melissa mclaren to be with us along with her daughter connor connor is a 17 year old transgender woman and her mother melissa has been supportive of her gender transition since connor expressed her preference To be a girl as a toddler and through the support of loving parents and a health system that provided gender affirming care connor was able to find her truest self and live a life of authenticity this is such an important conversation that i wanted to share with all of you on the race to value podcast Uh, last week was transgender awareness week and and last Sunday was Transgender Day of Remembrance and Resilience, and that came a day after we had a tragic shooting in Colorado that targeted LGBTQ individuals. There's so much rhetoric right now, and in opposition to gender affirming care, and and I I want you to listen, you know, to this interview with an, an open mind, empathy, and and just having a spirit of love and trying to understand. How gender affirming care for this particular family made a world of difference. So I'd love to go ahead now and hand it over to Melissa and Connor McLaren as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Melissa and Connor, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. I'm so excited to have this important conversation with you both today.
1: Thanks for having us, Eric. I'm so excited.
2: Well, I thought a great place to start our interview would be to learn about your family's journey and finding authentic truth through gender identity. Melissa, you're the mother of two identical twins, Connor and Murphy. And when the boys became toddlers, their gender-based behaviors begin to differ. And Connor, you're now a young lady, you're finishing up high school, and you realized early in your life that your gender identity was that of a female And you began the social transition to living as a girl at the age of four, and you were able to receive age-appropriate, gender-affirming care at a young age. And you went on to receive a combination of mental health counseling, puberty blockers, hormone treatment throughout your childhood. And Melissa, as I understand, you followed the advice from doctors at the time. Uh, that Connor began her gender transition. And that was crucial to making sure that you could support her and make sure that she can have a optimal uh, health and well-being. And Connor, you've even stated that I read in an interview that you said if you weren't able to have had gender-affirming care at such a young age, you'd actually be dead today. So um, it's such a powerful story. So I, Melissa and Connor, I wanted to engage you both as we start our conversation today. I'd love to have you describe what this transition was like for your family? I mean, what did you have to endure, Connor, from uh, peers and schools and society along the way? And how did the healthcare system support or undermine, you know, the transition as you were trying to overcome your gender dysphoria by realizing your truest self as a female?
0: Personally, I haven't had very many problems transitioning in the medical sense, socially we had to leave a couple friends and family behind um, when I first came out. And there has only been a couple of instances in which school was against my transition, but it's been mostly smooth smooth sailing other than politicians.
1: And I would say gender affirming care looks really different depending on the age of the child so as you mentioned you know connor began her social transition at the age of 4 she's 17 now so that was you know quite a few years ago we're hearing a lot in mainstream media about this phenomenon of a social contagion or kids you know, suddenly finding it, um, you know, trendy to become transgender. But in our case, um, and, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but in our case, you know, Connor began expressing preference for things that were traditionally female as early as we can remember, as early as 18 months old, uh, gravitating towards Dora the Explorer instead of Diego. Wearing you know, my jewelry and my heels, running around the house with a towel on her head like hair or blankets wrapped around a Roddy like dresses and really began to verbalize that something was wrong after she saw me changing the diaper of my infant niece and recognize that my niece's body looked very different from Connor's body. And at that point that was, you were three, three and a half began asking a lot of questions. And, you know, we had a very age appropriate conversation about typical anatomy um, for boys and girls. And then every single day for months and months and months Connor would say, when am I gonna wake up and have a girl's body? When will that happen? And I remember just being very confused by these questions and telling you every single day, no, your body's perfect. Um, you've got a perfect little boy's body. And those questions becoming more insistent, um, happening every single day, and then being joined by kind of new behaviors, asking for a dress, telling the neighbors that you were a girl and that your name was Lisa Tinkerbell. That was the first <laughs> the first name, Lisa Tinkerbell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And so then when we, when Connor's distress became so, so high, we did have a babysitter that we were using and um, had asked her when Connor brings up, you know, being a girl, can you please just change the subject as best as you're able? We're looking for a healthcare provider to help us navigate this. We don't know where this is stemming from, but it's very upsetting to Connor um and so can you just try and change the subject and and she did not do a good job of that
0: no no she didn't
1: you want to talk about that day
0: kathy was pretty pious um and when i talked to her about me being a girl she talked about how trying to change my gender was against the will of god and i would get sent to hell um, and I just, I didn't understand what she meant because I'm, I'm four years old. I don't really understand what hell is. And I keep telling her and telling her, I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm a girl. And she kind of got fed up and she just forced me to stay in the
1: corner all day and wouldn't allow me to talk to anybody. So when I picked the kids up, uh, you know, I, I am hearing this story and and Connor's distress was so, so bad That at that point, uh, my husband and I decided that we were obviously not sending the kids back there and that we really needed to find some medical support. And we just switched shifts uh, working so that the kids were always with us and found, gosh, I was online calling Boston Children's Hospital, calling um, an organization, Gender Spectrum, out I think in um, the West Coast, just trying to find help because I I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that my child's distress was so bad and I didn't know where to turn. And so we did find a therapist in Chicago. And so we were driving from Minneapolis to Chicago and found a therapist whose goals of therapy were really to um, make as small of changes as possible to bring Connor out of distress. And we would use that as our guide on what the next steps look like. And so for Connor, gender-affirming care started with you know giving Connor choices as to what Connor wanted to wear. So we, you know, took a shopping trip and I got the prettiest, most sparkly pair of
0: underpants I had ever seen in my life.
1: They were Tinkerbell, you yeah. <laughs> Tinkerbell underpants. Um, And we, you know, got we made sure that there were girls clothes and boys clothes always available, and allowed Connor and Murphy both to choose the clothing that you felt best in. And Connor never looked back it was girls clothes from that point on and after at this point, we were telling Connor that it was okay to be a boy who liked dresses. It was okay to be a boy who liked, you know, more traditionally feminine things, that there were lots of ways to be a boy and tried to, and we still believe that, you know, very much, but that was not the path that Connor was going to take very quickly. Connor would stamp her foot and say, stop calling me he, I'm a she, and um, we get very upset with us. And so again, you know more conversations with our therapist and um, you know having conversations on what this meant for our family, and you know, deciding to use she her pronouns. Um, and and that was for many years, the gender affirming care that Connor got was the choice to wear whatever the clothes were that made you feel best mm-hmm. and to use she her pronouns. And that persisted for a long time. Yeah, um, it was only
0: five-ish years ago that I actually started getting medical gender-affirming
1: care. Yes, and that looks very different. So before we transition to medical interventions, Eric, did you have any other questions about some of the social transition?
2: No, I don't believe so, and I, I really wanted to get go further into the medical side of the the transition and what a gender affirming care model looks like in that regard. I'm, you know, here at the Race to Value podcast, um, we're all about value based care, and we believe that this value revolution in healthcare is going to lead to patients having access to more holistic, patient centered, culturally competent care. That's Led by teams of diverse and inclusive individuals and gender affirming care is an important part of value based care and I, I must be honest that as a cisgender individual I don't understand it as much as as well as I should. So I would love for you both to discuss more about the medical side of gender affirming care once you were able to progress in in the transition and get to that point. I mean what did that look like. you know, uh, why was it needed? And, you know, when was the, you know, how did you make the decision as a family to proceed, you know, down that path? And, and then I'm also curious, just if you could provide also some uh, context as to why this model of care could be example, an example for all of healthcare to follow in terms of, patient-centeredness and and compassion. I mean, since you've both been on this journey together as a family for for quite some time, I mean, your perspective about the need for gender-affirming care in our nation's healthcare system uh, would be quite beneficial to hear from you. And I'm sure our listeners would appreciate that as well.
1: I love our team. So Connor, I considered our family. Our, Mm -hmm. Our family has a team of medical providers to help us navigate this journey. So Connor had been socially living as a girl since right before the age of five. We were well connected with uh, a clinic through our local hospital system who specializes in um, gender-related, gender you know, identity um, healthcare. And so we were pretty well plugged in and our medical team knew that as long as Connor continued to identify as a girl, we were going to support medical gender affirming care when it was age appropriate. So they knew, you know, everyone knew going in that this was our path and our psychiatrist was wonderful and always letting our whole family know that whatever the path was that Connor was going to be on, it was their goal to get us there safely. And so there was never any, oh, well, this is the definite next step, or this is the definite next step. It was always what are Connor's goals? You know, is Connor still strongly identifying as a girl? Um, You know, and even before then, you know, we've been meeting with a psychiatrist, we, you know, have a Therapist and really, you know, both of them are on board to make sure that Connor's mental health is in great condition uh, to help equip Connor with tools in her toolkit to just, um, you know, get through all of life's challenges, gender related or or just, you know, related to just life in general. Um, anything that you would add, Connor? Not really. You kind
0: of got it all in one. Um, it's been long. Um, A lot of people talk about on mainstream media, how children are walking into um, the doctor's offices and coming out with estrogen or testosterone. I mean, it's been a journey. It's been a more than a five-year journey of constant appointments, blood tests, and all of that, just to make sure I'm ready for the next
1: step. Yeah. So when we knew that we were headed towards puberty blockers, um, we added an endocrinologist to our care team Mm -hmm. and uh, we met with them well before puberty had actually started since we had been clearly communicating that this was Connor's path. And so well before puberty and they would measure, they measure when to start puberty blockers by seeing when a adolescent goes into Tanner stage two of puberty, uh, verified by lab work. So we knew going in that that was what they were going to be looking for. In the meantime, between, you know, before puberty started, we were having conversations around the different medication options Um, what the care options would include at that point. So blood work, monitoring with an endocrinologist, continued meeting with our psychiatrist and our therapist and our general practitioner provider. And so we were spending a lot of time up at our children's hospital meeting with all the different teams. And then getting lab work kind of here and there to monitor if Connor had actually gone into puberty and then once the lab work did show Tanner stage 2 then and only then did we get the prescription for puberty blockers do you want to talk about your first shot with <laughs> puberty blockers so when they first brought it out
0: they brought out it they brought it out in its original casing i don't know if you know it know this but the original needle you're supposed to use with it is humongous and I hate needles with every fiber of my being, and so I just about freaked out. And then they brought out a much, much smaller needle, and that is the most memorable. Nope, it's one of the most memorable things in my entire life. The second most memorable part of that uh, appointment was how thick the serum is. And it hurt.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's not a fun shot. That is for sure. Um, every three months we have to go in and. Have this really thick injection um, so that you remain in puberty suppression. And so, you know, this is a medication that is completely reversible and has to be given every three months so that the effects are, you know, persist until the next, you know, three-month appointment um, to give it again. And and so, you know, it's something that we consistently get lab work on and are, you know, meeting with our care team. Um. So that is puberty blockers. Um, took us several years to get to that point. So many conversations uh, and then, you know, had to be um, confirmed by lab work that Connor's body was doing what it was supposed to do by going into puberty. Mm-hmm. And then and only then, you know, after many, many conversations and lab work did we progress on to getting the actual puberty blockers. And then there's DEXA scans to monitor bone health and, you know, continue DEXA scans just as we can, you know, continue on the medication to make sure Connor's bone health remains healthy. So it's a lot of monitoring. You know, what I love most about gender affirming care is that it's not one doctor saying, this is what you should do. What we have is a family and a patient and a medical team saying, here's what we know about supporting kids like yours. You know, They make sure that Connor has vocalized what her goals are, um, how she's feeling emotionally, what an impact would be for her if she were forced to undergo a puberty in a gender that she didn't align with. And then we take all of that information and we talk about the pros and the cons and and what this looks like. And then together we make a very well-informed decision. And I think what's beautiful about that model is the patient and the family, because we are talking about a minor, but you know, we have this family unit that is surrounded by a medical team and we feel like we tell them the destination and they tell us, you know, they're the GPS and helping us safely navigate towards that. I feel seen and heard by them and I know if I have any questions, they're always there. How do you feel about it, Connor? I completely agree with you. It's been really nice to know that
0: in a way I'm kind of leading the charge here. It's not them corralling me into what they want me to do. It's me saying, here's what I need. Here's what I want. And them telling me the options and different things I can do to get them. Like I wanted puberty blockers and they were like, here's what we can do. Tests and procedures and I got it. And then after that, it was constant monitoring. And then on to actually getting estrogen, it's, um, I've got estrogen now, and it's a constant mix of um, appointments and seeing where I'm seeing where I am and uh, looking to see if my body's ready to go into the next uh, dose of estrogen.
1: It's really a, a team effort. Yeah, it's been wonderful. i I feel so well protected. And I feel they've made it so very clear that at any point in time, if this isn't the direction that's right for Connor anymore, here's the off-ramps. And so we've never felt pushed in any direction at all. It's more just what are the goals that are right for your family and how can we safely get you there? It's the most patient-centered model I've ever seen.
2: It's uh, just such an inspiration to hear that. Like there's this innovation in our healthcare system that's providing that holistic, you know, gender affirming care that's so needed. And I I know along the way, you both have had to engage significantly in political advocacy because there's been such a a backlash to gender affirming care. And, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, current studies show that there's about 300,000 teenagers between the ages of 13 to 17 that, Identify as transgender. That's you know about one to two percent of the population. It's growing. You know the the movement to gender affirming care has been growing. We've we've seen uh, about fifty gender identity clinics uh, opening. You know over the last decade, uh, we had uh, on a prior race to value podcast uh, Dallas Ducar, who's the CEO of Trans Health Northampton, uh, which is one of the leading. Uh, gender affirming care uh, clinics in the country. And Connor, I know you participated in the Thrive Gender and Sex Development Program at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital. And, you know, as, as you spoke about, you had access to full spectrum pediatric primary care services for transgender, uh, gender diverse children. And in this country right now, um, there's just so much conservative opposition to gender-affirming care, especially for the pediatric population. And some states are even saying or are, are even going as far as to say that it constitutes child abuse. And the Association of Medical Colleges uh, issued a, a statement uh, last year saying that gender-affirming health care for transgender youth is an important priority and that they would oppose any effort to restrict the health care's community's ability to provide Necessary care to any patient in need, including children. However, you know, we're seeing the anti LGBTQ rhetoric across the country leading to hundreds of anti trans bills that are restricting gender affirming care. I mean, we've seen 340 anti LGBTQ bills filed in the last year alone. And your state, in particular, Ohio, I know Republicans have been aggressively pushing their own version. You know, you have Ohio. House Bill 616, which uh, goes further than proposals from other states, including the the "Don't Say Gay" bill that Florida uh, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a few months ago. Um, there's also House Bill 616, which is banning curriculum. Um, you know, we're we're seeing now. Uh, there's this push to ban any discussions for K through 12 students on anything having to do with sexual orientation or gender identity, or even the history of racial discrimination in our country. It's just so frustrating to see that. And, and, I, and I'm really interested in learning more about the advocacy work that, that you both are doing. Can you explain why uh, gender affirming care for the pediatric population is so important and how you would counter uh, some of the criticism uh, that, that are in the conservative camps in that regard. And also as uh, advocates for the transgender community, what would you say to those people who believe uh, in banning access to this type of, of care or even banning the opportunity to have a conversation about it?
1: Connor, I would love to hear from you on what it would look like for you if, if Ohio decided to ban gender-affirming care for you and your friends that are also trans, gender diverse. Mm -hmm.
0: As we stated earlier, gender approving care doesn't start at hospitals or doctors, it starts at home and in classrooms. And legislating and banning the talk, talking about uh, LGBTQ problems is quite frankly, a terrible idea because in school, kids are learning about things like, Starting at um, kindergarten, the big bad wolf all, uh, up until 12th grade, they're learning about wars that happened in the past, but not being able to learn about sex and um, LGBTQ just existence paints a very bad picture about what it is to be LGBTQ. Because if you're talking about things like the big bad big bad wolf in Uh, kindergarten to wars in 12th grade and not allowed to talk about LGBTQ, it makes it feel worse. It makes people who are LGBTQ feel that who they are or what they are is worse than the big bad wolf. The don't say gay or trans bill and the current limitation on gender affirming health care sets a dangerous precedent limiting the ability to talk about an issue in America limits the ability to act on it. And that's a slippery slope because it might not always just be
1: don't say gay or trans. Yeah. Yeah. I think banning discussion of these types of issues tells Kids like my daughter, that who she is should remain a secret. And one of the biggest things that we worked on in therapy over the course of many years was trying to build Connor's confidence that who she is isn't a secret and doesn't need to be a secret. And that, you know, she's amazing just the way she is for her authentic self. So to have legislators try and censor the types of organic conversations that come up you know in a schoolroom you know we're seeing the impacts of that, you know with what's coming out of Florida and you know their struggle to um, keep teachers and you know to have teachers feel like we trust them to you know help our children learn and so i think the the curriculum bans are terrible and I, you know i know you had also asked about gender affirming care connor what would it mean for you if ohio banned medical gender affirming care
0: it would mean leaving ohio i would not be able to live happily in ohio if gender affirming care was banned it just wouldn't be a possibility.
1: We would have to leave. We would have to leave. And we've already made backup plans. If, you know, legislation is passed that does make it, you know, illegal for Connor to receive gender affirming care with puberty blockers and gender affirming hormones, you know, we do have our plan for where we would go next, but it's, frustrating and frightening for families like mine that we even have to have those conversations. And we do know families who have already left Ohio because this legislation has even been proposed. And I think also, you know, these bans are bad for healthcare providers. I look at how desperate we are for mental healthcare providers, especially pediatric mental healthcare providers. And when you have states Banning the support, you know, gender affirming care for minors and dictating what a provider can and can't provide to these teenagers. Why would mental health care providers or even, you know, any other health care provider choose to come to Ohio? And so it, you know, it further exacerbates um, access to primary and mental health services that we already desperately need. And so it's it's bad for Ohio, it's bad for kids, it's bad for, for providers, it's just bad across the board.
2: And you've also, as I understand, been involved at a a national advocacy effort as well. Um, you know, Melissa, I saw you post a picture of you with Speaker Pelosi a few months ago, where you know you were advocating for transgender rights. Uh, yeah, both you and Connor uh, at the Congressional LGBTQ Equality uh, Caucus. Could you speak a little bit about that as well, and maybe what some of the work is being done at the federal level?
1: Yeah, that was an amazing experience. I joke that. Connor is just filling out her college application (laughs) with these amazing opportunities. So yes, we um, had the fantastic opportunity with um, the human rights campaign. They pulled together moms with their gender diverse kids from a couple of states that are really pushing back hard against gender affirming care. And we were able to go to the Capitol building in Washington, DC and meet with several members of the congressional LGBTQ equality caucus. Um, We had some great conversations about what was happening at the state level. After that, we got to tour the Capitol building. We got to spend time with um, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, which was an amazing experience. And then we also have the great opportunity to meet with Admiral Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for um, Health and Human Services. Again, to let these amazing people in power know what is happening at the state level and the different, just the impact, I think, of what bills like this do to kids like mine and families like ours, and just the emotional toll it takes. Connor, do you want to add anything to that? It takes a lot
0: to worry about school and grades, and if you're going to be able to use the bathroom the next day. It's a lot to put
1: on the plate of a high schooler, or any child, really. Do you think that it's had an impact on your mental health?
0: Um, Definitely. There was a point last year in which I was diagnosed with depression. Um, My grades dropped and it was really hard for me to do much of anything by myself. I had no motivation and I was, I lacked joy. Like I didn't enjoy doing things and it was rough.
2: Melissa and Connor, I I can't commend you both for being on this journey together. Melissa, as a mother, you've been there to support Connor as she has gone through this important transition in her life to find her authentic truth, and and just being there to support her it speaks volumes in terms of the love and your family, and and then you know even going beyond your immediate family unit but the work that both of you are doing and advocating for transgender rights it's just such an inspiration um, because there there's so many states now and that are opposing transgender and lgbtq rights and uh, i i hope we 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 can come to the end of that and and have a conclusion that is really based on compassion understanding empathy and love and and you know unfortunately you know, just a few days ago, we recently had an an instance that was the exact opposite of that. I mean, you know, we're speaking today on Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. And just this last weekend, you know, we had that horrible shooting at Club Q in Colorado that was specifically targeting LGBTQ individuals and You know, the most recent report I saw was that there was five fatalities and 25 injured, and this wasn't just a lone perpetrator without an agenda. I mean, these murders were part of an orchestrated, increasingly violent right-wing campaign that's led by those who believe the LGBTQ community shouldn't even be allowed to exist. I mean – It's time in our society where we realize that, you know, enough is enough. We have to come together and unite and realize that everyone is entitled uh, to uh, inalienable civil rights and liberties. And, you know, coincidentally, the following day after the shooting, Sunday just happened to be Transgender Day of Remembrance and Resilience that was established to grieve and honor members Of the trans community who have lost their lives to violence and hate. So I I hate to bring up such a somber note, but, you know, given this important uh, conversation that we're having, I'd love to just get your parting thoughts on, you know, how can we come together to fight the hate and discrimination in our society so transgender individuals can live their lives free of violence and oppression? I mean, what would be your thoughts that you would impart uh, to our listeners that, we can bring about love and compassion, empathy, and acceptance into our deeply divided and polarized country at the moment.
1: Thanks for bringing that up, Eric. It was a really tough day on top of a really tough week. We had, in our family, uh, my husband had talked to the State Board of Education on Tuesday. My husband and I addressed uh, one of the committees of the General Assembly in Ohio on Wednesday, And so we were already feeling a lot of big feelings and we knew it was, you know, Trans Awareness Week which culminates in Transgender Day of Remembrance as you mentioned on that Sunday. And so to wake up on Sunday to the news of what happened in Colorado Springs was heartbreaking. And as a mother, really, really hard, you know I'm about to launch my child out into the world shortly into college. And to know that even LGBTQ safe spaces are under attack. And it's so hard because the rhetoric has really changed over the past several years. We've been supporting our daughter for 14 years now. And the questions used to be, you know, well, my my child says they're a dog. Should I feed them from the floor? And so That used to be, you know, some of the worst questions that we got. And now the rhetoric has changed to calling parents like my husband and I, you know, child abusers and groomers and and things like that. So the rhetoric has gotten a lot more violent. You know, we're seeing so many uh, messages of violence towards children's hospitals. There have been, you know, bomb threats. Matter of fact, the day that we testified um, to the Ohio General Assembly, there was an active bomb threat going on at uh, one of the Boston Children's Hospitals and so i think you know our the lgbtq community really came together so beautifully on wednesday we filled four rooms of the ohio state house and the community support and the messages of love that we all shared together were beautiful and i would i would just encourage anyone who thinks that gender affirming care is the wrong decision I wish that you could see the smile on my daughter's face, the way that she has blossomed. She thrives, you know, she's, you know, getting ready to go to college in another year, you know, looking at engineering, looking at all of the things that she's going to do with her life, and I think when we support kids like mine, any kid, not just, you know, a transgender child, but when an, our children get access to the you know, mental health care that they need that supports who they are, then we see them blossom and grow and become the well-functioning, you know, adults in society that every parent wants for their child. And I would just encourage anyone to to do the work, to do the research. There's so much more information now than there was when we started this journey 14 years ago. And it's okay to not know all the answers. It's okay to not understand. It's okay if members of the LGBTQ community make you feel a little uncomfortable as you explore You know what this looks like. But I think at the end of the day, what we all want is for our children to grow up to be happy and healthy and productive members of society. And that's what my goal is for both of my children. Connor, I know that you, you know, have thought a lot about, you know, how people can support your community. What would you like to add? I would want to say
0: constantly keep your mind open. Don't close yourself off to new ideas. We don't always need a shield, but it's really nice to have someone to stand next to. Really, you got everything. <laughs>
2: Well, Connor, I uh, I just can't you know say enough about your courage and and uh, Melissa just your commitment you know to your daughter to to help her find her her truest self and you know this is this has been a, a really important conversation I I greatly appreciate the both of you for your willingness to. To, to share you know with our listeners your story i mean uh, melissa you and i have gotten to know each other over the last few years working at the levitt school of health at western governor's university um you know i i learned about your story and and, and then just having the opportunity today to meet you connor i uh again you know just you know think so highly of uh Of how you've been able to navigate some of these challenges in your life and so excited about your future. And again, I I really appreciate the both of you for, for, for coming on, you know, our podcast and, and really, you know, uh, having this important conversation. And I, and I I know others are going to hear about this and they may not be intimately involved, like you are as a family and navigating gender affirming care. But, you know, I, I would hope, uh, you know, to your point, Connor, that they can open their minds and, and listen and, and understand at a level uh, where we could actually get past, you know, some of these friction points now that we have with all the rhetoric and, and come to center in terms of unity and love and acceptance. And um, so I, I want to, again, thank you both for, for being on our show today.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's been a it's been a great conversation. It really has.